0: Grace, peace, and mercy is ours through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. If you, if you have come to this church only in the last nine, eight or nine years, raise your hand. Okay, that would be about half of you. The other half, we went through the unlikely branches some 10 plus years ago. I, don't even, I didn't take the time to go see when it was. But I knew that when we were planning our Advent sermon series that so many of you had not got to experience it. And it's such a journey of grace and peace and Christmas joy to see the way God displays the story of his own son with these five prominent women prominent in God's mind, and they became prominent in the Bible. But because, alas, we don't all read our Bibles so much, sometimes we miss what God is trying to make a point with or what's prominent because so much of it is rather nuanced it's not just in your face and this is one of them it's a nuance but a nuance is still a point to a presenter whom is God so first of all I'll start with in our seminary training way back the, the it's a master's level training they had every senior write a, his biggest paper of his three years would be a history paper. They used to call it the senior church history paper. Now they, they can do a wide range of research and studies for their masters at our seminary, and it doesn't all have to be history. But back then, everybody's was history. And all of all the papers you ever did, the seminary would reserve every graduate's history paper on file called the essay file. So now, if you go to the seminary website, you go to the essay file, you put in any of our names as pastors, you can find our, our senior paper, okay? Not that I would recommend to go look for mine, <laughs> but, but what I learned, by, by I chose a pastor that was prominent in this area of the United States uh, in, uh, 50 years ago because I wrote my church history paper 30 years ago, 31. So. Uh, what, I, what I learned, so many things you learn, I just, but what's, what's important for today, what I learned while doing it, interviewing his, his wife, widow, his son, his, the members of his church, and, the, and, and if you get, sit with somebody more than 30 minutes, maybe an hour, maybe an hour and a half, and they get comfortable, you get the good, bad, and ugly. You don't just get the good. And what I learned was, if I was going to write about this man's life, and he is gone, I had a solemn responsibility to be honest, humble, and not maybe drag any of his weaknesses out like that was the focus. In other words, I had to be interpretive as I wrote. And somebody had said to me around that time, all of history is interpretive. And it was just like a big aha, I guess I'm a slow learner. I'm in my master's program and it's finally dawned on me that everyone that teaches history, writes history, and the Bible is history, and that's what we're doing today is history for faith reasons. It's interpretive. The one writing is choosing not to say certain things, choosing to tell certain stories, choosing to hide others from you. There are so many gaps in the story, as God tells the plan of salvation in any one individual's life. You have to ask the question as as a Christian studying the Bible to grow in faith. Why did he put that story in? And I'll just tell you, the story of Tamar is probably, the, in human terms, the most sordid compared to the other four women. So when we ask about this first person that appears in Matthew's genealogy, You've got to ask, why did, why did Matthew stop and mention Tamar in a list of men? As they count genealogy through the male uh, going down through the generations. Matthew's a Jew. He's writing for Jews. He's trying to show them that their Messiah that was long promised as a descendant of Judah, which is a, a prominent figure in our story today, and a descendant of Abraham, Judah, and then of David. He's telling the story. He stops here in that, you heard it read, it's, it's in your folder, and he says... Matthew, he says, and, and he was also born of Tamar, who gave birth to Perez. And he knows that his readers have two places they can go to get anything at all. And we read them, uh, the, the Ruth, and then I'm going to be reading to you the story from Genesis. To get anything at all about Tamar, you got to ask God, why are you bringing this up to the surface, especially since it's one of those things that when you tell your family story, you sort of gloss over, right? This is the kind of thing that I'm about to read with you that makes people not do Ancestry.com. <laughs> they, they don't want to know. <laughs> and, I, and I'd say that to get you to listen to it because God still wanted to tell you it and he wanted to because he loves all of humanity. You're going to notice that I even have to use a little bit of euphemistic talk in this because we have such a mixed audience and I don't necessarily want to provoke conversations at your lunch or dinner table with little children that you don't want to have. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. Let's read the story. I'm going to propose to you as a pastor three really good reasons he would include it that I see in my meditations and I hope you take it home and your faith life is stronger because of what I teach you. You might want to get with me in the bulletin. You don't have to find it in the Pew Bible, but it's page 8 and 9. At that time, Judah left his brothers. He's got, a, he's got 11 brothers, right? And his mother and father. He left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. This is all in the promised land. At that time, it's promised to the family, but they don't own it. It's the Canaanite land. He went further away from his family. He, he, he jaunted out. There Judah met a daughter of a Canaanite man, a non-Israelite, named Shuah. He married her, made love to her, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. Now he's going he's to tell history really fast here because it's setting up his point. Moses is the writer. She conceived and gave birth to a son and then named him Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still a third son and he named him Shelah. It was at Kaziv that she gave birth to him. So they've moved around a little bit. They are Bedouins. They're shepherds. They have to move to follow the grass. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight. And so God's characteristic of justice came into being. God put him to death. He died suddenly. He was a wicked man, whatever. Again, he's glossing a little bit. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked. Then Judah said to Onan, take your brother's wife as your own. Have a son with her so your brother has an heir. But Onan knew that the child would not be his. What would happen is the child would grow up. He would do all the work as a father, taking care of him, sending him off into the world. And he, this child would be, as the son of the firstborn, would be the legal heir of Judah and take that double portion. So Onan's thinking, no, I don't want to do that. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight. He, what he did was he made sure she would not get pregnant. If you want to know what I, I, I paraphrased that line for you in the folder, go look it up in the Bible what he did to do birth control. But he kept her from having a baby because he didn't want to serve the way God wanted him to serve. And what he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. Now, Judah is standing, he's lost two kids they remember just to say that they were wicked and to only tell what one of their sins was, God himself is not telling you a whole lot, but there's a whole lot of darkness in this family. And this is the family of Abraham that from which comes a savior. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, live as a widow and go back home to your father's household until my son, Sheila grows up. He must've been a young teen at this point for he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. Judah, in a sense, is blaming Tamar as being a bad luck charm to his two boys. And he's saying he has no intention of really giving Sheila, and he's buying some time giving Sheila to her. And she's got, according to their, their ethnic and their civil laws. She's got to wait for this family because she had a husband and this is the way that they protect legacies. And so she's back at her parents' home and time has passed. Now what I'm about to paraphrase, it's not printed here and it just says verses 12 through 23 is for the reasons I gave you at the beginning. She figures out that Sheila is well past marrying age and that Judah is not gonna let Sheila marry her because he's thinking she's gonna get him killed too. Judah's way off in his reasoning but Tamar is trying to figure out what to do. So she decides I will still have a legacy for my husband by deceiving Judah himself into having a child with me. And so she poses as a shrine prostitute at the edge of her town Judah's wife has died, the mother of these boys. Time has passed. He goes up for the shearing of the sheep, which is like the partying around the harvest. He comes to that town, and in his moments of weakness, he sees what he thinks is just a random, there's nothing random, dear saints, a random shrine prostitute, and decides he wants to go there. And he comes to her and talks with her, and she, he, she says well he says I don't have anything to pay for this the most ancient profession She said well give me a young kid goat and he said I don't have one with me and she's he said what should I do to give you a pledge and she says give me your driver's license <laughs> that's what it was they have a they had a signet like they sometimes it was on a ring his was probably on a necklace where you put it in wax seals on important documents and other things that were, was your signature. He said, give me your seal, the, the thing that makes your seal, and give me your staff, because it would be identified as his with his own family history or you know coat of arms on it. So he did. He was desperate in his earthly passions, and he did. He gave her his driver's license. And he left and went to the shearing of the sheep after that night and he went home and then he sent his friend because he didn't want to be seen doing this with a kid goat to that town and there was no shrine woman to be found. Couldn't find it. He comes back and he tells Judah, there's no, there's no shrine. And I asked the people and they said, we've never had one of those here. And so now Judah's really freaked out. And he goes, well, let's just stop poking around and asking questions because both you and I will be humiliated. He goes, besides that, I tried to give her a goat by sending you. And then a month or two passes, and this is what, it ha- this is what happens. Back to the story written. Sometime later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution. And as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. Oh, my goodness. Maybe he also thought hypocritically, this will take care of the whole, you got to let Sheila marry me, whatever. Remember David saying when Nathan the prophet told him the story about the guy taking the sheep from somebody else, that man ought to be put to death. And then David was the one that, so you are the man, right, Judah? So as she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. She's, the community is about to stone her. I am pregnant by the man who owns these. She said, this is the most beautiful to me of feminine way of dealing with a male community. See if you recognize whose seal and cord this is. <laughs> she doesn't rat him out. She just says, come on. Judah recognized him and said, she is more righteous than I am. Since I wouldn't give her my son Shula." Shelah. Shelah. Notice he doesn't talk about the sins that we're thinking about that that brought this all on, but he is thinking about the, for him, the meta-narrative is that he was going to prevent her from having his son as husband. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. She was, as she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand. So the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, this one came out first. Birth order was important for inheritance and legacy and all those things. She said, this one came out first, but then when he drew his hand back, then his brother came out. And she said, so this is how you have broken out. And the name Perez was given to him, which means breaking out. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out, and he was named Zerah. And then God later counted the lineage of Jesus. It came through Perez, the one that actually was second, uh, first out, but second born, because one had already kind of partially been born. And so these are the fascinating and tantalizing and head-scratching parts of the story of Tamar. Now Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. This is in Genesis 38. This is Moses' writing. It's the foundation to the whole Bible. At the time of Ruth, you don't have the whole Bible. The Bible's still being lived out and written, right? Right? So when Boaz, the, the, the guy that married Ruth in the city of Bethlehem, and they, she, Ruth gets pregnant, and we're going to talk about Ruth in just a couple weeks. When, when uh, that all takes place at the end of the story of Ruth, there she is again. The townspeople say to Ruth and Boaz and Naomi, may your family be as fruitful as Tamar's, even for the ancients. The the sordid tale of how Tamar got twins. She got, you know, she was going to be a widow without a legacy, without children, and suddenly she got twins, and there were family trees going in two directions from her in the name of her dead husband because of what she did with her father-in-law. God, what are you thinking? We're trying to write a story that we can teach in Sunday school. (laughs) You don't hear this one in Sunday school. It's not in the lineup for good reason but the reason I'm trying to highlight this is just to show you God's got something to say because all history is interpretive. and I got three things one is this is a real savior from a real family on a real planet just like the one you live on there are people that are the bible says that the world is under the prince of the power of the air that are spinning yarns and ideas about jesus being a made-up character in history he's a, a phantom of beings and that none of this is really real and when god's telling the story as the bible's being written and unfolded and then when you can sit back where we live in time and read the whole thing this is this has the word real stamped all over it the randomness with which God throws this story out here and the way the ancients picked up on it needing to be mentioned, that God was making this woman and her family fruitful in spite of her way of doing, doing things. It's real. This is reality TV, right? Why would I highlight that? Because as a pastor, I'm concerned of the people that, that, un, that they want to take away your faith. For whatever their motives are, I don't know but they want to criticize History Channel type writers and they want to take away your faith. The story is real. And it's got all the stamp of reality on it. Secondly, when you look at this story, you see a God who is not pedestrian, just doing everything according to the way you would expect it so that you could understand it. He is the meta narrative God. And he wants you to see that that these people, Tamar and Judah, they're part of a meta-narrative that's bigger than their life. But while they're living out their lives, they're just like you and me. They got their head down. They can hardly see above just what they're trying to accomplish within their definition of what the world should be. They're trying to make a living. They're trying to make a family. They're trying to keep people alive. They're trying to keep a legacy they're trying to do what they think is set up a kingdom on earth, which is what we all naturally without spirituality do. And they're, they they think it's God's kingdom on earth, but it's a kingdom on earth. Nevertheless, so Judas trying to do all, he leaves his own family, the, the, the family of promise that's supposed to be nomadic and waiting on a city whose builder and maker is God. And he's trying to make it on his own. And so he's out there marrying non-Israelite people who have no faith and worship other gods. And he's got, he's, he's ha- they're having babies and he's, Doing all this stuff. And God says, this is is the kicker of the 12 sons of Jacob. God says, a few years later, and from Judah, I will bring the Messiah. I can tell you two big reasons I would have never thought that and where you could tell me too. one is judah is not the poster child for walking as a man of faith if you want to pick the best one out of the twelve you'd probably pick joseph secondly judah lost two boys the other, the, the third one he's not he he leaves the story we don't even know if he ever got married and the way Judah made a baby, that the, when God says later that, that Judah's family is going to be the one through the Messiah comes, God meant it's going to be through Tamar's child, Perez. So God says of this story Tamar may have been wrong in the way she handled it, Judah may have been wrong in the way she handled it, but I'm in charge of everything and I don't care how they handled it. I'm going to bring a savior from what they did. Now, when you and I want to decide how life ought to be and then we judge God accordingly, you better stop, short. Because sometimes you judge yourself because you know the mistakes and sins you've committed and you think, I've ruined everything. Do you think a God who could make a savior out of this family would let you ruin everything? (laughs) By the sins and mistakes that you've committed? No, he's, he's got this. So after you sin, and when you have guilt and despair and regret, and you look at your life and you say, I ruined everything, stop, stop being egocentric. You're part of a meta-narrative. In the meta-narrative, he lets you mess up. He did not support it. He does not, he had to die for it, but he lets you mess up. He's not done though, right? He goes and finds Peter that denied him three times and reinstates him. And I can go on and on from the Bible. After Judah did all this, God picked Judah when Jacob's blessing his family. And don't think Jacob didn't know what was happening later. He knew what happened. Because he talks about Reuben and what he did and Simeon and Levi and what he did. But right here, he gets to the Judah story and he doesn't say what he did because God's using that. Remember, all history is interpretive. And Jacob, as he blesses his family and he's dying, go to chapter 48, 49 of Genesis. You'll see this. Judas family is going to be the coming Messiah family because they're part of a meta-narrative much bigger than the one that they were trying to write. And you know what? why I'm telling you this? I want you to learn more to trust God's plan and His provision and His gracious overarching watching over all things. So when you're trying to stress and take over all the pressure of the mistakes you made or the hurts that others have caused you, stop. Trust God's plan. Trust His provision. And I put in the worship folder a definition of providence that you could take home with you. So it's on the paper there underneath the theme and parts. It's real. You're going to trust God's plan. And then the third big point from the story is grace. The biggest issue in everyone's life regarding faith from the christian perspective from the bible's perspective from jesus perspective the biggest issue is always self-righteous which can take away your salvation the greatest part of this story is how forgiving and loving and gracious god is that he would not zap all these people the way he zapped onan and Er. (laughs) ur He was gracious. In Jewish thought, in many decades and centuries, but especially in the time of Christ, in Jewish thought, you had a leg up in getting to heaven if you were a true blood relative of Abraham. Remember in John 8 when Jesus said, Don't say I'm a child of Abraham. God can raise up children of Abraham from these rocks. I mean, what an insult. But he had to insult their pride so they would listen to him about grace. Before Abraham was, I am. Who can, and this is all in the same discussion, who can charge me of any sin? And you're trying to kill me. And you know the story. He died for, he told Nicodemus, the Jewish leader, God so loved the what? Not the Jews, but the world. That was, in those Jewish ears of Nicodemus, that was a, 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 the meta-narrative coming out, that he was not used to. God so loved the world. When you see a Canaanite woman with all her Canaanite ways, who in a dog-eat-dog, male-dominated world uses the oldest profession to have children, and God says, I include her. And when Ruth's people later are going to talk to her, they're going to speak in glowing terms. I'm sorry, people, but that's just grace. That's undeserved love. That's mercy and grace and forgiveness. There is no righteousness she brought to the table. She was a Gentile and she was unrighteous, living without any kind of Jewish law. And she was completely accepted by God's grace because God already was in his mind. He had already taken care of it because he's eternal And in his mind, the cross had already happened. Through his son, he had already died for Tamar. And in history, he would, right? And so in the history of telling the life of his son, Jesus, the Jewish man, Matthew, makes Tamar prominent because she's included as a member of God's kingdom and she's a Gentile woman. And that is why I want to make sure you leave here today Saying to yourself, the greatest thing happening in my family is grace. Dale Carnegie, Zig Ziglar, Norman Vincent Peale, some of young people don't know who these old guys are. They all said, if you want to, if you want to, uh, get close to a person you just met, ask them about their family. We love to talk about the family, right? When we can gloss over and you don't know me and I can hide all the mistakes and talk about all the successes. I'm proud of some things my parents did in raising six kids and the way they lived their life. I'm proud of my kids and the accomplishments they've made. But I'm smitten by this story that the greatest part of my family is that Jesus forgives us all in this Patterson family by his grace. The grace is the goal. Their accomplishments might be the silver, but the goal is grace. And it's the grace in your family too. And don't think that's not going to be helpful because sometimes it's family pride in a believer's family that would get people to start trusting in their heritage just like the Jews did and not listen to the law and the gospel for themselves. So when you see a story included like this of a Jewish guy Judah and a Gentile woman forgiven, and God makes sure it's told in His book, He's saying, in the meta narrative, it's all about My grace. Um, I know you have probably heard this poem. Put it put it up on the screen. Um. You can find it pretty easy if you just put it, if you want to get it later for your own, just put No One Expected Me poem in Google and you'll get it. But I'm going to end with this. I dreamed death came the other night, and heaven's gate swung wide. With kindly grace, an angel stood and ushered me inside. And there to my astonishment stood folks I had known before, some I had judged and labeled unfit for heaven's door. Indignant words rose to my lips, but never were set free, for every face showed stunned surprise. No one expected me. Amen.